I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, it appears that there's a dark money network pushing pro-Saudi and United Arab Emirates policies in New York. And notorious hawks like John Bolton play into the story. Returning guest Eli Clifton of Responsible Statecraft the official publication of the Quincy Institute joins us to discuss an article he co-wrote with Mortsara Hussan. Apologies for any pronunciation errors on my part for the aforementioned responsible statecraft as well as The Intercept. It's a story that definitely caught my eye and I hope it will catch yours as well. But before we get to our discussion with Eli Clifton, however, I'd like to recommend to you someone by the name of Alexander Yu, if you're in the California area. Alexander is a holistic therapy specialist who is all-embracing and welcoming. With expertise in therapy related to PTSD, grief, trauma, LGBTIQ, and gender relationships. So, if you're in the California area and looking for a holistic therapist, call or text 323-834-9828 or email therapy at alexanderyoo.com www.alexanderyoo.com for more information. California license number 10288. Six. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Eli Clifton. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Eli Clifton of Responsible Statecraft and co-author of an article uh, done between Responsible Statecraft and The Intercept, entitled Dark Money Network Pushes Pro-UAE-Saudi Policies from New York. And I, I love the cover on Responsible Statecraft. It has that really scary image of John Bolton on there. You know, John Bolton just gives me the heebie-jeebies. But uh, how did you come across uh, this story? And maybe you could give us the outlines of it. Well, you know, my, my interest that brought me to this story probably goes back several years. Uh, I've been following a group called United Against Nuclear Iran, which is also based here in New York City. Um, and it's rather murky uh, backers. It, it was unclear who was funding this group, who was really behind it. Uh, and, and it worked to, to put pressure on 
both private businesses that engaged in 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 financial in, in business transactions with Iran, uh, encouraging them to stop doing so and saying that there was a high risk in engaging in these sorts of transactions. Um, but and the concerning thing I saw, um, especially uh, as the as the uh, COVID-19 pandemic swept across the world was that actually they were proposing treasury licensed uh, sales of medical equipment to Iran, um, which seemed like a pretty extreme type of uh, position to take. Um, and, and I'd been looking at them for, for several years. I, I'd sort of been able to identify that the, the person who seemed to be behind it is a billionaire here in New York named Thomas Kaplan, who uh, has interests in the mining industries. What's his politics um, has, like out of curiosity? Very pro-Emirati, pro-Saudi, and pro-Israel, um, which you see in the in the board of advisors for United Against Nuclear Iran, that you have uh, folks who have ties to all three of those governments, as well as in the events that they put on. Um, and Kaplan, is he has investment from sovereign wealth funds from the Gulf, um, and he's boasted about his investments retaining or appreciating in value if there is uh, uh, unrest, particularly in the Middle East. Um, so he sort of has seems to have a bit of a financial incentive for, uh, for, for the policies that, that, that he's promoting. Um, and, and what I saw was that they were sort of repeating this model of United Against Nuclear Iran. They created something called the Counter-Extremism Project that uh, claims to be sort of a, 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 an organization countering violent extremism, especially on the internet. Um, and again, it, it tended to tow a very pro-Saudi, pro-Emirati um, uh, line. They were uh, outspoken against Qatar, for instance, when the blockade of Qatar was, was, was going on. Uh, and, and it seemed as if, once again, that was very consistent with the uh, Saudi and Emirati interests and, and Israeli uh, aligned with, with Kaplan. Um, and finally, last summer, they launched something called the Turkish Democracy Project, which was an advocacy group. It was uh, with the stated goal of promoting democracy in Turkey, which admittedly has had a hard go of it under, under, um, Erdogan, under Erdogan right? and the AK Party. Um, and immediately what was so shocking is that other than it was clear that this was sort of a, a yet another one of the photocopied groups that uh, the folks involved with United Against Nuclear Iran put together, um, it's that there were, there were no actual Turkish members. Uh, Wait, what? No Turkish members in the Turkish Democracy Project? What? Yeah, well, uh, in fairness, there were two, but they dropped off uh, within days of the project's launch. Um, and that would seem like kind of an odd thing. So why are these folks that included people like Joe Lieberman, Francis Townsend, John Bolton, uh, claiming that it was time to sound the alarm on Turkey, as they put it, while there were no actual Turks on board. Uh, and I was just going to add real quick, if I could, yeah. uh, the, the, the two Turks who were involved, the two Turkish people who were involved with the project were removed from the website's list of advisory council members not long after its launch. So yeah. they were gone very, very quickly. They were gone, with, they were on it for, for in a matter of days. Um, there was already quickly blowback against the group um, from Ankara, uh, where they saw it as being, you know, potentially some sort of U.S. Israeli Saudi Emirati effort to to pressure Erdogan. Um, uh, and, and to be clear, uh, the, the Saudis and the Emiratis have had you know, tensions with Turkey over the past several years. It actually seems as if they're starting to to turn that around a little bit right now, which makes this group seem even even more odd in the way it positions itself. Um, 
And the more we dug into this group, the more it was pretty clear that this was um, uh, very well funded and it had certainly some high profile people involved, but it, um, it, it, didn't, it didn't have any real ties to Turkey other than uh, numerous ties that went back to United Against Nuclear Iran um, and the Counter Extremism Project. It was a lot of the same advisory board members. There was an enormous overlap. Eight out of 11 of the Turkish Democracy Project senior leadership and advisory board members they hold positions at United Against Nuclear Iran or the Counter Extremism Project. And they're headed up by the same fellow, Mark Wallace, a, a former George W. Bush administration. Uh, and what do we know about Mark Wallace? UN. Just, just a, a little bit of background on him. Yeah, Wallace uh, goes way back. He was, I believe he worked on Jeb Bush's campaigns in the 1990s for his governor's races in Florida. He was one of the attorneys that worked on uh, uh, Bush v. Gore, uh, or at least he represented the George W. Bush campaign in their, in their litigation around, around the, the, the election results in Florida. He was a George W. Bush administration uh, appointee diplomat to the United Nations. Um, and he worked underneath, I believe, John Bolton. Uh, and John Bolton has become a consistent figure uh, in the projects that are that are that are that sort of sprout up alongside each other, like United Against Nuclear Iran, Counter Extremism Project, and now this new one, Turkish Democracy Project. If I could, real quickly, I recently had uh, Stephen Walt on, the great uh, realist foreign policy expert, and uh, we were talking about how people like John Bolton just keep coming around and around, and they're always within the sort of uh, I don't want to use the word the Washington swamp, but they're the Washingtonians. And the number of times that John Bolton has been wrong and yet is still around, including in this Turkish democracy project, completely amazes me. Um, he was uh, Trump's, you know, most aggressive former national security advisor, and he's still running around in groups like this. And, and he was involved with the counter-extremism project and United Against Nuclear Iran before he went into the Trump administration as well. And they, they paid him, uh, I think it was a couple hundred thousand dollars um, that were in his financial disclosures uh, when he was national security advisor. Um, and he went through the administration and came back and went back to these groups. And I think really what this, to get kind of a, a bit of a tangent here, but what you just addressed is that we, we see people like John Bolton who have been wrong so many times and there seems to be very little accountability. And it seems as if the views that they are expressing are kind of out of whack with uh, a lot of what Americans want. Americans don't want another war in the Middle East. Americans uh, have generally been supportive of the Iran deal, um, have wanted to see a re-entry into it. And, seems to have thought it was a bit of a mistake what Trump did abrogating from it. And Whereas John Bolton, he's like, well, we really, 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 really need to have a right. war with <laughs> But I think what we're seeing here, I think this is a good example of it, is the fact that, okay, it's one thing to point out that he's wrong, which he is a lot of the time, um, but we, we, you look at groups like this and they give jobs, they give money, uh, they create a soft landing. They give a launching pad to people like him. And the point is, is there is a financial support network. And it's not just financial. It's also uh, you know, optics and boosting their careers and all sorts of things. But there is a network that helps boost these people. And, and frankly, it, it helps um, uh, protect them from and shield them from 
accountability for the lousy decisions and, and policies that they've advocated for. And, and I think that when you go through the list of people, and I encourage everybody who's listening this, to, who's listening to this to do so, who are involved with the Turkish Democracy Project, you'll see a lot of people who are on the wrong side of foreign policy decisions. Um, and they seem to have a quality of failing up. And that failing up doesn't just happen in a vacuum. There has to be a network that makes that happen and enables it. If you could, there's two other people you mentioned near the beginning of the article, uh, Bush administration counterterrorism official Francis Townsend, and also uh, you, you mentioned Senator Joseph Lieberman. Why should those names uh, maybe raise red flags for people? <laughs> well, I mean, so Francis Townsend uh, has had quite a business career after she served as, uh, I believe she was a uh, uh, Homeland Security Advisor under George W. Bush. Um, and she has, and then uh, I guess she, she was later Deputy National Security Advisor. Um, and she's consistently been a pretty hawkish voice on the foreign policy front. She's, she's segued that into a business career. She's, uh, she's, I believe, on the board or a vice president at Activision now, um, which seemed to coincide with the investment, the influx of uh, Gulf uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund money. Um, and according to some hacked emails from uh, Yusuf al Taiba, the UAE ambassador to the United States' uh, uh, email inbox, it appeared that she had a rather close relationship with uh, uh, senior royals in both the, the UAE as well as possibly in Saudi Arabia. Uh, as for as for Joe Lieberman, well, I mean, his, his name is, is pretty well known. He was uh, a very hawkish Democrat as a senator from Connecticut and uh, ran alongside. He was Al Gore's vice presidential uh, candidate uh, in the election that they, they ultimately lost in, in 2000. Uh, and he's also consistently been, uh, you know, a voice that's often compared to sort of Lindsey Graham, John McCain uh, in terms of hawkishness. You know, one of sort of the, the perceived as heavyweight foreign policy experts when he was in the Senate. It. But again, it was this constant pushing for confrontation, be it the invasion of Iraq or uh, pushing for one measure after another, bringing the United States closer to a military confrontation with Iran. So this Turkish democracy project, it's connected to these sort of anti-Iran organizations. And of course, we should mention, you know, uh, the, the AK party, uh, you know, hasn't necessarily been a uh, well, it's been heavy handed in Turkey. There, there's been serious problems there. Yeah. But what's interesting is uh, the Turkish Democracy Project uh, doesn't seem to uh, have any clear way of addressing these problems. Right. Their aims and goals are very unclear, correct? It is. It is. I mean, I think that sort of their idea is to run a similar playbook that they did against Iran, where they, you sort of target. Um, uh, companies that are doing business or thinking of doing business in Turkey. But the problem with that, and see the big advantage they had, I should say, with doing that with Iran is that given the sanctions that were on Iran, it, it was kind of um, a serious threat to even have a private entity like United Against Nuclear Iran harassing, sending letters, um, um, flagging to companies that their activities may or may not be in accordance with sanctions, with U.S. sanctions, was uh, you know a pretty serious threat. 
Now, I think with Turkey, I think that's a heavier lift, given that um, you know Turkey, for the most part, U.S. companies can do business um, with with Turkey. Um, it, it obviously has military ties to the United States and to NATO, um, which means that it's much more deeply integrated uh, in, in the United in, for, in the U.S. sort of business sphere. Uh, I think it's a heavier lift what they have to offer, but I think you are getting to something here, which is that you guys want to talk about Turkish democracy, and by all means, because you know. Turkey, yeah, the AK party has been heavy handed. They have been fundamentally undemocratic in a lot of ways. Turkish democracy is really under attack if it hasn't been already uh, effectively destroyed. Um, and so these are legitimate concerns. However, when you look at what the Turkish democracy project is doing with people who have been involved in you know, what could in, be interpreted as regime change efforts in Iran, um, ties to uh, foreign intelligence agencies. When you look at who's involved with United Against Nuclear Iran, it includes former intelligence officers from, uh, and intelligence chiefs from like Australia, the UK, Germany, France, Israel. Um, it goes down the list of uh, countries that may have a reason to try to promote instability. Um, you start to wonder, well, this doesn't seem very democratic, does it? <laughs> it seems like it's a dark money pit, a dark money network tied to uh, intelligence agencies and financial interests that are very often regional rivals of the countries that are being targeted, supposedly in the in the intra, best interests of the people who live there, um, and that's that, that that seems inconsistent and it seems actually contradictory with the with the organization's stated mission. So just to reiterate, I mean, uh, you know, eight out of eleven of the Turkish Democracy Projects. Uh, senior leadership and advisory board members hold positions with either or both United Against Nuclear Iran or the Counter Extremism Project. Uh, has there been any questions raised about, you know, things like conflicts of interest or better yet, uh, have they, you know, publicly filed information about their funding? And I know the answer to that because I read the article. Yeah. Well, the, the short answer is that they haven't provided any information about their sources of funding. Um, what we do have um, is in, well, in 2013, I think it is, I, I actually got donor roles that were not intended to be made public by United Against Nuclear Iran, which confirmed that trusts controlled by Thomas Kaplan were the majority funder alongside uh, funding from a Republican mega donor, uh, uh, Sheldon Adelson. Who's now deceased? His wife has sort of taken on taken on the the mission that that he undertook, funding really hawkish candidates and, and pulling the Republican Party toward uh, um, toward a uniform kind of uh, foreign policy vision, at least in the Middle East, that's extremely pro-Israel, not even just pro-Israel, pro-Likud party, um, uh, and and pushing for U.S. confrontation with Iran. Um, but what we do know about their finances is more sort of the aggregate of what this network looks like. Uh, and, and I've looked pretty closely at it. Um, the Turkish Democracy Project hasn't really filed anything yet. But in looking at the network overall, which is really just looking at United Against Nuclear Iran and the Counter Extremism Project, at this point, uh, a few years ago, there was a, a third organization called, started called the Counter Extremism Project United. Uh, it has no public uh, outward facing aspect of it at all. Um, but what it does do is it functions as the umbrella funder 
for United Against Nuclear Iran, the Counter Extremism Project. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Turkish Democracy Project um, shows up there as well. Um, and believe it or not, this network of organizations uh, since between 2009 and 2019 uh, have actually brought in and spent most of over $100 million, um, which I believe makes it probably one of the biggest uh, dark money <laughs> uh, US foreign policy you know, advocacy or pressure networks in existence. Uh, I don't know if you can identify a bigger one. You know, maybe APAC is, is bigger. It is bigger on a yearly basis. Uh, but that one at least has some degree of transparency about who's involved in it and what their motives are. Um, this is really something that's largely opaque. Uh, and it, it, it's a lot of money that's being spent. Now, you also use an article from July 2021 um, for a lot of this piece in Responsible Statecraft. It's an article from the government news site Intelligence Online, and basically you lay out how, uh, you know, Kaplan is sort of the money man behind Wallace's Iran-related advocacy groups, and you mentioned a group called Electrum Group. Uh, what is that, and what's the connection to Kaplan and Wallace? So uh, uh, Wallace uh, works for Kaplan um, as a, not just in these uh, uh political pressure groups, but he works for him on his business side as well. Um, and Kaplan has a firm called the Electrum Group that invests in, in metals and in the mining sector. It's sort of uh, Kaplan's investment vehicle. And uh, Wallace works as a senior advisor there. Uh, Wallace has also worked for other uh, entities controlled by Kaplan, including the, I believe it's called the Tigris Financial Group, which also was invested in, in, in the mining sector for the most part, as far as, as I know. Um, and again, these are commodities which both Kaplan and Wallace in, in invest in, in, in prospectus that have been published and promoted. These are, these are basically documents saying to, to potential investors saying, here's why you should invest in us. And they've, they've talked about in at least two instances that I found where in one case, Wallace and in the other case, Kaplan talked about the fact that, hey, these, these investments in precious metals, usually gold or silver, uh, um, really do stand to be safe investments, if not actually advantageous ones, if there is uh, unrest in the Middle East. Uh, basically, uh, uh, geopolitical shocks that would go through the global financial system and say, hey, these are good investments for that. So there is this really uncomfortable quality here that the people who are pushing for confrontation with um, be it Iran or be it Qatar or be it Turkey are effectively have a, a business going, which uh, they say will actually do quite well if there is um, exactly that type of, of horrible uh, uh, situation uh, unfolding in, in the region. So while I was reading this piece in Responsible Statecraft, I was actually reminded of, uh, you know, the whole Jared Kushner uh, fighter jets thing with uh, the UAE. And, you know, when I came to the part about Kaplan, that's when I thought of Jared Kushner, because Kaplan is like completely open about his extensive ties to uh, the yeah. Gulf Arab Royals. He's very enthusiastic about it. He's like, oh, I, I, I love my business and philanthropic ties to yeah. the United Arab Emirates. And, and there's just no, uh, you know, no questions about that seemingly. And what's crazy about it all is that the obstacle to finding out, you know, the finances behind this web of Kaplan-linked foreign policy pressure groups 
there's a big obstacle. And who is that obstacle? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is where things really uh, go off the rails, I would say, in terms of um, setting off people's spidey senses or, or setting off red flags. Um, that, you know, in 2013, um, there was a, a great, another, another billionaire, a, a Greek shipping, shipper named uh, Victor Restus. And United Against Nuclear Iran had claimed, uh, and I don't really know the truth of, of the allegations, but th they had claimed that uh, some ships that were owned by Restus um, had engaged in um, some form of, form of trade with uh, Iran that was in violation of sanctions. And Restus responded by uh, suing. He sued United Against Nuclear Iran. And he sued a variety of people attached to it, including Thomas Kaplan. And, and this was actually right when I was starting to look at what was going on with United Against Nuclear Iran. And it was very interesting to see that, that their, uh, I guess they had investigators or their attorneys came to sort of the same conclusion I was drawing, which is that this guy Kaplan seems to be a really central figure in it. And among other claims that the lawsuit made, because I mean, the core of it was that, was that inaccurate or, or de defamatory claims made by United Against Nuclear Iran were, were harmful to, to, to Victor Restus's business interests. Um, but one of the claims that was made was that Kaplan and United Against Nuclear Iran were actually financed by undisclosed foreign interests. Now, <clears throat> in making that claim, presumably that is something that in discovery um, or in depositions, it, that's something that will be asked for, right? You know, who, who are your funders? Where are your donor roles? Um, and are you indeed funded by any foreign sources? And what's really shocking is at this point, you know, a lot of people are starting to pay attention to the case. This is getting interesting based off of the claims that are being made in it. Now, out of nowhere, the US government, and I think this now sort of tips into 2014, the US government stepped in and invoked state secrets saying that moving forward with the case, going into discovery and depositions, would, would potentially jeopardize US national security. Now, <clears throat> typically, the U.S. government intervening in, in, in a lawsuit and claiming state secrets is uh, something that only occurs when the U.S. government is a party to the suit. So, for instance, you go sue some government department and you start asking for classified stuff in, uh, as part of your uh, discovery process. They're going to step in and say, you can't do that. Perhaps, you know, as one lawyer presented to me, there's a scenario one could think of where let's say you sued a government contractor like um, Boeing, and you started to ask questions about classified work that they do for the US government. Well, the US government, you can kind of see why they would have an interest in stepping in and saying, we got to block this. Um, this actually poses a threat to US national security. No one has been able to explain why or how the US government had an interest in this case other than that the judge was persuaded by it. I don't know what that means. People have suggested maybe it means that, that, that United Against Nuclear Iran was working in close conjunction with US intelligence or other intelligence agencies, to intelligence agencies, uh, either foreign or domestic, that the United States has very close working relationships with. It's really unclear. Uh, but the case got thrown out. Um, and that was, that was pretty striking uh, and something that I think continues to hang over them as when one asks questions about, so who really is behind this group and what, what really is this constellation of groups all based out of New York, all tied to this guy, Thomas Kaplan, who refers to, uh, I believe it was uh, Royals in the UAE as being his closest partners in life other than his wife. Um, you know, what, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's so 
bizarre because we have so little, as you put it, specific information about the donors. That's sort of, it, it remains, as you put it, o- opaque. But the person at the center of it all that we have a lot of clues about is Kaplan. And I, I love that you mentioned uh, Loblog, which, you know, I, I was a huge fan of that website. You know, I was floored when I found out that Kaplan contributed over $800,000 to unite it against a nuclear Iran in 2013. I mean, this is wild, wild stuff. And and that's just the the one year we know about, because we only have some transparency into United Against Nuclear Iran's finances for one singular year. So then before we start wrapping up, there were just two more segments of the article I wanted to cover. You have the funding from abroad uh, segment of the article. Uh, In 2015, Wallace filed a quote unquote, truth and testimony disclosure with the House Foreign Affairs Committee before serving as a witness in his capacity as head of the counter-extremism project. Uh, Could you explain that whole story to us and why it's important? Sure. So yeah, in 2015, as you just said, he filed a so-called truth and testimony disclosure, which is a required disclosure when you testify before Congress. Uh, and it asks some kind of basic questions like, are you, uh, are, are you an agent working for a foreign principal? Are you, uh, are you funded by the U.S. government? Um, and, and it asks you for details about that. And it was interesting because in, in, in all fairness to Mark Wallace, he went above and beyond what is uh, required of him in that disclosure, and in, in that he actually responded that that the counterterrorism project did not have any foreign funding, but he was not an, an agent of a foreign principal. But he said, "quote We have only received to date individual and private contributions. CEP has received no monies from foreign governments. We have discussed funding of CEP with both the U.S. government and various foreign governments in the future." Now, I know for a fact that he has received the U.S. government funding that did come in uh, as part of their uh, anti-radicalization and counter-extremism, uh, countering, and countering radical extremism online work. And what about that foreign, the stuff about the foreign governments that he alluded to? Well, I, I mean, I've asked them a number of times about it and, and they refuse to, to answer questions. Um, but you know, there are other little indicators along the way, other than what we talked about with Kaplan and his foreign interests. Um, then I, and I go back to those emails that came out of Yusuf Alotaiba, the UAE ambassador to the U.S.'s uh, email account. And, These are the leaked uh, emails, right? The trove of leaked right. emails? Okay, t- tell right. my listeners we, about that. Yeah, we, we don't know who hacked them or who got them or how they got them, but a number of journalists, including myself, received tranches of them. Um, and one email from came going from Mark Wallace to Otaiba, and this was in September of 2014, referenced cost estimates for an upcoming forum. Um, and that is unclear what exactly that was in reference to. Uh, in 2015, um, there was a mention of potential UAE support for counter-extremism project, uh, where Frances Townsend um, was, she was asking for assistance from, from I believe it was from uh, Otaiba in arranging a meeting with Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi. And, uh, and she concluded her email by thanking Otaiba for quote, support of the CEP effort. And just just to make sure, I I don't want my listeners to get lost. So Otaiba, Yusef Otaiba is the current United Arab Emirates ambassador to the U.S. and minister of state, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then uh, in August 2016, uh, former Senator Norm Coleman from Minnesota, and he's now a Saudi lobbyist, 
Um, he, he, he was when this email was written in 2016 and he is now. Uh, and he wrote to Otaiba, um, supposedly at the direction of the Saudi foreign minister, uh, asking to uh, provide them to provide the counter-extremism project's tax status. Um, and as Coleman and, and Coleman wrote to the UAE ambassador, uh, foreign minister Al-Jubair recommended that I follow up with you on the attached matter. The counter-extremism project is a 501c4. Let me know if you have any questions. Uh, the only 501c4 organization, by the way, of the ones we've been discussing is the Counter-Extremism Project United, which is that umbrella group that funds pretty much everything else. Now, um, go on. No, no, go, go ahead. I wanted to ask a lot of people, other than you, me, and uh, Ben Freeman, I feel like a lot of people don't think enough about Farah. Sometimes I'll see Farah mentioned in a, a news report when the government is going after someone, but you know, you don't hear much about Farah. Why does Farah matter, and why does Farah matter in this case? Well, it may matter in this case. I, I should I should clarify that uh, the foreign so it's called the Foreign Agent Registration Act, and you know th th this is a law that is uh, not consistently applied, and I, it's my belief that a lot of folks, especially in Washington D.C., are probably running afoul of it. And what, what the Foreign Agent Registration Act uh, requires is it requires entities, it could be individuals, organizations, nonprofits, businesses, whatever, um, who are engaged in political activities, which the Justice Department defines, and they do so pretty broadly, um, to register. And registering means that you disclose the nature of the contract that you have. Usually it's a contract that you would have with a foreign principal. Um, and that you provide some regular updates about the activities that you undertake as part of that. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong, I should say, with working for a foreign principal. Um, there's nothing, it, it, there's certainly nothing inherently immoral about it. Uh, and there's, no, there's nothing inherently illegal about it. All this law requires is that you disclose it and that you do so with some regularity. Um, now, none of the groups that we discussed have registered under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Some of the individuals have, like Norm Coleman, who I just mentioned. Um, real real but, quick, quick. Uh, Norm Coleman, he used to be a senator. He is now a Saudi lobbyist, though, right? Yes. Wow. As one does. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and so I talked with Ben Freeman. He, he was the, he's the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy. And, and he kind of confirmed my suspicions. And he said, these groups all engage in activities that would qualify under Farah's definition of political activities. Um, they have very explicit aims related to US foreign policy. And they are actively trying to influence sections of the public. And in some cases, policymakers themselves toward these policy objectives. Um, and obviously you can do all of these activities as Ben points out, it's legal, it's not, something that's banned. Um, but if you are receiving funding or taking direction and actions at the behest of a foreign government or entity, you, you should be registering under FARA. So it goes back to, there's a lot of evidence pointing to foreign direction and foreign influence. There's a lot of evidence suggesting to foreign funding. And there has been a consistent refusal from these organizations to answer questions about who is funding them. And the US government has even stepped in to intervene to prevent such information from being disclosed as part of discovery in a lawsuit. 
Um, and that's sort of, you know, there's a lot more questions than answers here, but I think there's also a lot of circumstantial evidence, most of which brings us to the point that we need more information about these groups, what they're doing, and what this $100 million, now well over $100 million, I'm sure, because the last disclosure I had was from 2019, what this $100 million has, where it originated from, and, and what the goals of it really are, because they are putting together uh, now a chain of groups that seem to have very focused, targeted agendas in shifting US policy and pushing US businesses uh, in certain directions. Again, ones that tend to be toward confrontation between the United States and, uh, and, and countries in the Gulf, such as Iran, or trying to drive a bigger wedge between the United States and countries like Qatar and Turkey. So that leads me into the last thing I wanted to cover here. Um, you know, how did Turkey react to the launch of this group over the summer because you know uh, th that relationship has, hasn't always been like the worst relationship between the gulf states and turkey so what is going on with that so you know, then this is where things do get kind of interesting um obviously they lashed out pretty quickly um I, publications in turkey were, were were linking this to united against nuclear iran they were very interested obviously in both the israeli connections that united against nuclear iran has as well as its ties to the Gulf. Um, but what also has occurred since roughly, the, I think it was the beginning of the summer, has been uh, to be, uh, there's been a, there's been a bit of a mending of ties between uh, Erdogan and the AK party and uh, the Emiratis and the Saudis, or at least evidence that, 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 that the Emiratis and the Saudis kind of want to, to improve that relationship, which had been very tense for the past several years. And uh, I, I think that it puts this group in an interesting place. And I think it might be a good indicator of who's actually behind it. You know, Do they double down on the stuff they've been doing? Does their funding continue to increase? Or does this, does this project take on a different form or does it start to wind down as the Emiratis and the Saudis uh, start to look for um, uh, a slightly closer relationship with Ankara? Um, I, I think it's a little early to tell. Obviously, these groups may have some degree of independence. They may have total independence. We really don't know. Uh, and again, that sort of brings us back to the fact that you know, it's really dangerous and it's really concerning that there are groups like this that are operating with huge amounts of funding, high degrees of influence. They've had, they, they, they literally had a member of their, of their advisory board go into, and I think he may have been even serving as, as, as an executive at Counter Extremism Project, Become become Donald Trump's national security advisor, um, and then cycle back to these groups. We don't the know. Foreign policy do. blob strikes again. Yeah, and we and, and much like a lot of the foreign policy blob, they don't like to disclose who's paying them and whose financial interests they may have behind them. So, last two questions. I promise to let you go after this because I know you're busy. But um, what do you make of what's going on geopolitically? Because I've seen a lot of people be confused by some of the moves that Saudi Arabia has been making lately. I think they joined or were involved with in some way uh, China's uh, Shanghai Cooperative Organization. I know they've been talking to Iran more. Is the talking to Iran more just because they're thinking, hey, you know, at this point, the U.S. really wants to get back into a deal with Iran. We may just have to deal with things the way they are. What's going on with the Saudi-Iran relationship and all these other things? Well, you know, I think the Saudi-Iran relationship is really interesting and, and, and partially because the answers just aren't that clear. You know, how much is it that uh, the Saudis are doing so because they think that there's been a, a fundamental shift 
uh, by the United States towards wanting to dial down the tensions and to uh, ideally re-enter uh, a nuclear agreement with Iran, and that the, the, the Saudis continuing to have a very confrontational posture uh, is now really out of sync with um, really the, you know, the, the, the country that's their major patron in a lot of senses in terms of selling them the, the weaponry that they, that they rely on. Um, you know, it could also be that you know there, there is actually a growing awareness that within Iraq, within Saudi Arabia that they need to dial things back, that they need to ultimately, if they do want to transition their economy uh, towards uh, other uh, towards being a more diverse icon economy, having access to global markets, being able to invest their sovereign wealth fund money around the world, that they can't be seen as a totally um, uh, reckless. Uh, actor in the way that they have been seen pretty widely. You can't off Jamal Khashoggi, in other words. Yeah, you shouldn't be yeah, murdering Washington Post journalists. You know, it turns out has some blowback effect. And that um, doesn't even get into the whole issue with Yemen, but but go on. Yeah, yeah. And, and and yeah, and Yemen for that matter, you know, being having it having holding responsibility for a, oh, a famine uh, alongside the Emiratis. Uh, in, in, a, in a war that is pretty unpopular on the global stage is also not super helpful for them. So I think they have a number of things, push pressures on them and incentives to improve their relationship, uh, certainly with Iran. Um, I, but I, I do think, you know, credit where credit is due here, I, I do think that, you know, their change in tone does seem to come coincide with the end of the Trump administration and uh, uh, Biden's uh, and Biden being inaugurated. And, you know, if, if there's one thing, you know, and there's plenty of criticism one can make about Joe Biden. I think he could have done more. I think he could still do more to try to de-escalate tensions with China. Uh, I'm hoping that they will be successful in, re in re-entering a uh, nuclear accord with Iran. Uh, I think these would all be good things for, for the U.S., for U.S. national security interests. Um, but <clears throat> I do think that that the administration has probably made pretty clear to the Saudis, uh, and I don't think they've held them accountable for Khashoggi or treated uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman as the pariah that Biden said he would treat him as. But I do think that there has been a pretty clear message from them to the Saudis, which is, you know, knock it off. We really don't need to have you guys acting so recklessly. Um, and if you want to continue to enjoy the stature that you have um, on the global stage, um, you, you really do need to do some, some, some uh, a, a real uh, adjustment in, in the direction you're going here. And first and foremost, I would imagine the message was, uh, you got to dial things back with, with Iran. Uh, we do not need to have another war in the Middle East. Uh, that's not going to serve anybody very well. Uh, I think the Saudis do know that. <laughs> I think the Israelis know it too. Uh, and, and I think that, that tamping that down, uh, I, th I suspect, was a priority of the Biden administration. You know, that was another thing I wanted to briefly touch upon is, yeah, I, I think Saudi Arabia and Israel have always had a, a very interesting relationship. People forget about this, but um, I remember when Mersheimer and Walt came out with the uh, Israel lobby book. Immediately afterwards, uh, Mitchell Bard comes out with a book in response called The Arab Lobby, The Invisible Alliance That Undermines America's Interests in the Middle East. And you have all these different figures saying it's not the Israel lobby. It's the Arab lobby. And then if you watch certain Saudi television networks, which you can find some of them on YouTube, they'll push sort of anti-Israel lines, especially showing videos of like extremists, um, like the late Mir Kahani. What is going on with the relationship with Saudi Arabia and Israel? Because on one hand, it seems like they work together, but there does seem to be this tension at times. 
Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of the tension is probably the, uh, you know, the, having a population in Saudi Arabia who are probably generally uh, rather unsympathetic to, to Israel and concerned about the treatment of Palestinians. Um, so I, I think that people like, like MBS, you know, they do walk a fine line with the Abraham Accords. Now, I, I think that both the UAE and the Saudis have done a pretty good job of trying to explain to their, to their populations why it's beneficial for them to effectively kind of look the other way to Israeli treatment of Palestinians uh, and, and enjoy normalized relations with Israel. Now, if they can, can what the long-term fate of that is, I, I really don't know. I, I think it is. I think it is a heavy lift because I do think still, uh, and it's hard to get good polling data on public opinion uh, in the Gulf and in, in, in fundamentally any undemocratic state, because people aren't that inclined to you know respond to polling questions honestly. Um, but but I do think that you know that they, they are kind of testing the limits in some regards by pushing the Abraham Accords in the ways that they have. Uh, and that, you know, it, it, whether or not they can continue to do so um, uh, and how they handle that with their own media and outlets that sometimes, uh, you know, don't totally toe the line to, to the same degree that one would think the Abraham Accords would ensure that they would. Uh, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think it's one that we really don't have an answer to yet, other than that, um, you know, we don't normally talk about public opinion in places like UAE and Saudi Arabia. But, you know, the Abraham Accords are a real test of that. Uh, and that normalized relationship between uh, the Gulf states and and Israel is 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 going to be a real test of how much latitude, for lack of a better term, the leadership in these countries really have. It's really weird too, since I mentioned that there were you know those two books. There was the Israel lobby book and then the Arab lobby book that Mitchell Bard wrote. I, I mean, to me, I, I looked at both books and I said, you know, I, I'm not sure that one uh, conflicts with the other. Maybe both these not. lobbies uh, have power and influence. No, and, and, in, and, in, and in a lot more cases than either of them would probably want to admit, they might not be working um, in coordination, but they are working in the same directions. <laughs> you know, they are pulling in the same directions in a lot of respects. Uh, and I think that in terms of making the, hyping the threat from Iran, and making the threat of a potential Iranian nuclear weapon and trying to oppose US efforts to reach a diplomatic way of constraining Iran's nuclear weapons program, um, they really found themselves to be allies uh, in a lot of respects. And, and interestingly, that, 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 that joining of, of, of efforts or, or alignment of efforts, I should say, uh, about um, you know, really making Iran the central national security threat that uh, you know the Saudis and the Emiratis and the, and and the Israelis all claimed it was uh, actually sort of set their leadership up in a very that uh, they all were were justifying their their policies and their and their positions in many sense on that on that same inflated threat. Well, the the thing that gets me too is whenever I criticize something like um, APAC, you know, people will say, "Oh, uh, Stephen Walt wrote that APAC book, oh, blah blah blah, anti-Semitism," and I'm like. You know, Stephen Walt was writing about the, I, I think the China lobby that was garnering a lot of criticism in the 1950s during the Cold War. So, you know, in my opinion, it's not like any of us are just picking on one lobby. And I'm so tired of these bad faith debates. I was wondering if you agree on that. And also, uh, if you could, is there any opposition uh, to the efforts being made by these sort of dark money networks in Washington. I think you mentioned one at the end called Dawn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Dawn was, was founded by uh, um, 
well, it was it was it was created in the aftermath of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi um, and uh, Sarah Leah Whitson, the executive director of Dawn, which is called uh, was it Democracy for the Arab World Now, which focuses on on human rights in 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 especially non democratic countries in the Gulf, um, has certainly tried to be uh, and I think effectively a voice countering that. But listen, there's a lot of money at play here, and most of the money, I believe, in terms of trying to influence U.S. foreign policy comes from folks who, who want policy outcomes that aren't necessarily aligned perfectly with US national security interests in any definable sense, and are in a lot of cases advancing for the interests of um, either sort of niche views or extremist views or those of foreign countries. And there's nothing inherently the matter with that. You know, We have contested policy spaces in pretty much every other space of the American you know, political landscape. It's probably a good thing, right, to have uh, a competition of ideas and policies. Um, these are all good things. The thing that really grates on me is that a lot of the folks in the so-called blob or in the Washington establishment are the people who, um, who have, as we talked about earlier, sort of acted with zero accountability towards the bad decisions and bad policies they've advocated. Don't want to don't don't want to acknowledge that there are financial interests, that there are special interests, and that there are foreign interests all seeking to influence US foreign policy. They want to pretend there is sort of a uniform group of serious thinkers who, who come to very serious ideas and generally all kind of want to maintain the status quo and generally don't want to talk too seriously about mistakes that have been made or about learning from our mistakes or, or God forbid, about, about accountability for bad policies and policymakers who have fundamentally failed in their jobs. Uh, well, God pretty forbid good. anyone use the term the blob. If you use the term <laughs> the blob, I have seen New York Times journalists lose their proverbial minds over the use of that term. There is no such thing as the blob. The blob doesn't exist. What are you talking about? Right, right. Yeah, it's, 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 you're, not, you're not supposed to suggest that there is a foreign policy establishment that has, off, that has operated largely free from accountability. Um, <clears throat> and, and But again, I go back to the fact that Nothing that's going on here is all that different or, or morally more problematic or even inherently illegal compared to any other contested policy space. It's just we don't talk about the foreign policy uh, debate and the political landscape there and the tensions that, 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 that go on within it in a normalized way. We want to continue to we continue to very often, at least the mainstream media and those people who choose who benefit from this uh, lack of accountability generally kind of want to come to this notion of you know well politics ends at the water's edge and there is no meaning the foreign policy debate in Washington is really between people who all want the same outcomes have the shared same interests and 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 want to you know it's all a matter of you know differences in policy rather to, to reach the same ends as opposed to people want very different ends they want very different outcomes. And that's okay, but let's acknowledge it. Let's acknowledge that there's interests who want different outcomes, who have vested reasons, both financial as well as political, to want different outcomes, um, and that there are moneyed interests, both foreign and domestic, who are who are backing um, the, the different parties and different and, and different actors here. Just in closing, here, one of the issues I have when covering foreign policy, I feel like, you know, it's not just an issue of. You, you can't call it the blob. Uh, there, there is no blob. It's a matter of, you know, you have these characters, and I hope I'm not mischaracterizing her, but I feel like people like Ann Applebaum, they sort of have this view of 
and I would say this is especially true of Robert Kagan, uh, you know, those who disagree with the way business is done with U.S. foreign policy in any way, uh, they're just these uh, rambunctious populists. They're, uh, they're, they're like the know-nothing party of uh, centuries ago. Do you think we're ever going to move past that really ridiculous, like, uh, oh, anyone who questions uh, the foreign policy establishment uh, is just a, a know-nothing populist? Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, I mean, of course, I have a reason to say that, which is that, you know, I, I push back on that and I, I wouldn't have a good reason to continue to do what I do if I didn't think we could have a better outcome. Um, well, I mean, we have people yeah. like Stephen Wertheim and uh, yeah. Andrew Basevich getting published in the New York Times, so we must yeah. be making a little bit of headway. Yeah, and you know what? I, I would point to the Afghanistan withdrawal and that you saw serious people both in the media as well as in sort of the think tank establishment who heading towards the withdrawal were saying, you know, eh, I probably shouldn't do this. You know, I don't think this is a good idea. You know, here's our path for how we can still, quote unquote, win in Afghanistan. Um, and then after the, you know, the, the, the more rapid collapse of the um, Afghan, Afghan National Security Forces, um, and Ghani's government than anyone really anticipated, including real critics of the war itself. Um, I think a lot of people came out of that saying, you know, oh yeah, well, of course this was unwinnable. Um, uh, maybe I don't agree with every aspect of how the withdrawal went, but you know what, like this was probably the right decision to make. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, people do change. And I think seeing foreign policy failures like that uh, get playing out on, on, on the nightly news really does um, start to push people towards maybe being a little more honest, maybe reporting a little more critically on this stuff, maybe getting the media at least to start talking about the fact that, um, you know, hey, mistakes are being made here. And can we start to talk about why? What are the structural qualities of the foreign policy establishment that permit these things to happen? And that allow them to, not just that they happen, but that they continue to happen and the same people seem to be involved time and time again. Well, I want to thank you again, Eli Clifton, for coming on Parallax Views. I want to make a brief correction because I'm a very obsessive person. I mentioned the uh, the China lobby. What I was referring to was uh, back in the 20th century, there was a whole issue over the, the pro-Taiwan China lobby, which really, it was the Taiwan lobby. So if people were confused with what I meant by that, that's what I was referring to, the big uh, scandals and controversies of the 20th century around the pro-Taiwan China lobby. People can look into that, and people should look into uh, all of these sort of foreign lobbying efforts and looking into things like FARA. So I want to thank you again, Eli Clifton, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eli Clifton and be sure to follow his work at Responsible Statecraft. As always, if you can, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier, with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. At the $5 tier and above, you will get exclusive bonus content, such as bonus shows, including our series on the covert history of George H.W. Bush with These Long Wars, the blogger otherwise known as TLW, 
Also, you'll get some video versions of past Parallax Views programs and archived editions of previous Parallax Views programs that will now only be available in the archives on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can get all that at the $5 tier and above. And also at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout, which leads us to the producer's credit shoutouts for Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Ed, Gunner, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above. I should also be working on a few different things come the new year, including a brand new and improved Discord server, if all goes well. And trust me, I also have a few other tricks and treats up my sleeve. So again, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.